encouraged us by way of appetite to look into the Word of God as we continue a study today in the marvelous wonders of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps it'd be fair to open that with John 3.16 by reminding ourselves that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In fact, isn't that in a simple way the reason we've gathered today to offer homage to the great God of heaven who has so bountifully and richly blessed us with the opportunity obeying His Son to enjoy the wonders of everlasting life. We, for some weeks, have been involved in a study of the Holy Spirit. We have noted along the series of that study a number of powerful and wonderful ideas, not the least of which have been the fact that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. He is not merely a force, an energy, an influence, some non-material thing that one can simply refer to as if it's inanimate. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Lord on many occasions used the pronoun he or him to identify him. We, in the second lesson of the series, turned our attention to appreciate a bit about the work of the Holy Spirit and found that not only in creation, but also in the wonder and the powerful aspect of revealing the divinity of heaven's will, the Holy Spirit has that as his, has his prerogative, his work, and how majestically he has fulfilled that work not only in the Old Testament in which the Spirit revealed quite often to the judges and to the kings and others what heaven's will was, we now appreciate that this written word is due to the superintending influence of the Holy Spirit. He wrote this. And thus, when you and I read the sacred text, the special volume that is the Word of God, it is the words of the Holy Spirit revealed to us by the nature of God's will. We saw last week as we continue that series of studies, an especial emphasis on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It occurred twice in all of history. It does not still occur today. We learn from Acts chapter 10 as well as Acts chapter 2 that those references to the baptism were by the statement of the Savior fulfilled on those occasions by a special emphasis to what transpired in the coming of the gospel era to those apostles in chapter 2, to the household of Cornelius in chapter 10. That closed any baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. We also notice, though, near the close of the lesson, a reference in Acts 2.38. In fact, that text, since it will still be pertinent for our study today, read like this. Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We did discuss at least a bit that reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit. We also reached the conclusion that that gift was a description of and related to that miraculous measure imparted by the imposition of hands of the apostles. But having said that, I know that there are many questions that still remain about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so might I ask that today we continue that discussion and we strive to conclude it in an interesting fashion. And then before the lesson's over, we will discuss the indwelling of the Holy Spirit also this morning. It would be entirely fair to say that there are still many questions in the religious world that surround the issues of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as well as issues that concern the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I thought we today might take an interesting opportunity to look at various texts and let God's Word identify for us the proper approach to these subjects. And so with that said, 
could I direct your attention to the gifts of the Holy Spirit? In Acts 2.38, that text we just read a moment ago, to summarize briefly and also lead us into the further part of our study concerning it this morning, we saw that that reference by Peter to the gift of the Holy Spirit came in a text that in fact presented two wonderful promises. On the one hand, repent and be baptized. Those were the salient statements applicable to all in the Christian era to receive the benefit of salvation. They are as needful for you and me today as they ever were. In fact, we find that all the conversion accounts in the book of Acts testify the necessity of belief, repentance, baptism. And so today, any individual desirous of approaching the throne of God and receiving the measure of salvation must comply with that sacred edict of Acts 2.38. But now as the verse closes, we notice he says, And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost, as the King James Version reads it. That reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, we learned last Lord's Day, that's not necessarily the Spirit Himself. It is something made available by the agency of or by the working of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 8, we noticed an especial emphasis that there were brethren there who were saved. The text said so. But they had not yet received the means of the Holy Spirit referenced on that occasion. You and I reached the conclusion in our study that that fact that they hadn't received that measure of the Holy Spirit meant that they had not yet received the opportunity and blessing of being able to perform miraculous matters, those gifts of the Holy Spirit. When Peter and John came and laid their hands on them, they then did have that opportunity and that special working. Acts 8 verse 17. The brevity of our discussion last Lord's Day, however, was perhaps unfair in the sense that there was much more that should be said. After all, doesn't the New Testament frequently mention the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And would we not at least do us well to revisit some of those passages and seek to more clearly identify some of the matters that are so often mentioned to you and me today? Have you involved yourself in a discussion or had someone say that, a person must speak in tongues. There are those in our world who teach a person, if he is saved or she is saved, must be able to speak in tongues. There are those who will say that a person must be able to exhibit various and sundry spiritual gifts, such as healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues, supernatural wisdom, and the list goes on and on. And these individuals who say these things to us are very sincere, they're very earnest, and they in their heart are very honest. We would then do ourselves well to ask, and I'll be the first to admit, I cannot heal anybody. I can't speak in tongues. I studied a bit of German in college, but that's the only element of any foreign language that I can speak. I could not go to Japan and speak Japanese. I can't go to Russia and speak Russian. And I feel very safe in saying there's not a person within the sound of my voice who can do the same unless he or she has studied those languages. To say things like that lead us to say then, where do we appreciate these spiritual gifts? Over the next few moments, let us study just a small bit about 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 
and see what the inspired apostle had to say about these spiritual gifts. I've listed in briefness some of the things that I'd like you to consider with me. I've tried to highlight perhaps the major questions. First of all, what is the nature of spiritual gifts? Secondly, what's the purpose of spiritual gifts? And lastly, are they still in existence, resident if you please, today? I believe we can in fairness and in quickness answer all of those questions just by using the sacred text in a very brief way this morning. Notice, if you would, in the beginning in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and let's first read the listing of them, just so that we're aware of what it is that's being set before us. Paul lists nine spiritual gifts. I would invite you to read, as I read aloud, beginning in verse 7, and we will read through verse number 11. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. We have then had set before us this listing of the so-called spiritual gifts. Notice that there were nine of them. In brevity, what might we say about them? First of all, verse 8 lists wisdom as the opening one. We understand, for instance, that the book of Proverbs and the Old Testament lifts high the element of wisdom and encourages all of us to behave wisely and to behave in a fashion that would be becoming of those interested in completing the will of God. Now might we ask, is the wisdom under discussion here the same kind of wisdom presented there? I would submit to you the answer is no. This is a supernatural variety of wisdom in which it is not learned, it is not due to experience, it is not due to education in any fashion. It allowed the person who possessed it to appreciate and know things that he or she otherwise could not have known. The second one is knowledge. Same kind of issue. We well know that we are admonished to be people of wisdom. Second Peter 1 verse 3. 5 says that we should seek to add wisdom and knowledge rather to, to our life. But remember, wasn't it true that Paul, for example, in Galatians 1 verse 10 and 11 said, I didn't receive it by man, nor was I taught it. He was speaking of the gospel. Paul didn't learn the salient and deepness, the deep matters of the gospel by studying it and learning it. May I submit that the knowledge under discussion here, again, is a supernatural variety of knowledge. It doesn't come by study. It didn't come by learning. It didn't come by any special interaction with others by way of teacher and pupil. The third one listed, verse number 9, faith. Isn't it true that all are admonished to be people of faith? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. And even the apostles asked, Lord, increase our faith, Luke 17, verses 4 and following. Can we not appreciate that the faith here was, again, a miraculous variety, measure, if you will, of faith? That degree of faith perhaps leads us to the next one, 
the gifts of healing. Healing. That one is one, admittedly, we do seem to encounter often, at least from time to time, you might see a billboard or a marquee outside a certain church building that advertises Dr. So-and-so is coming who has a Ph.D. in something and he's going to perform a healing for all who are present. Maybe on TV we have even seen so-called exercises of the gifts of healing. Notice that clearly is something that's a supernatural matter. No person has the capability by study and learning of, in fact, performing an immediate supernatural healing of a person who is ill or who is ailing in some manner or means. Notice also the next one. In verse number 10, the working of miracles. Various and sundry other kinds of miracles. Maybe walking on water or maybe causing some other event that would otherwise happen not to happen. Maybe as a person is about to witness a car crash to intervene in a supernatural fashion and prevent it. That would be a miracle. It would be a suspension of the natural laws of nature. In essence, a miracle. Notice also to another prophecy. The word prophecy means to speak forth the very will of heaven. To do so with directness and with power. Very much like the prophets of the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the others, who were specifically given the word of God and they spoke it forth. It's not as though that they entered into years of study to learn it. They were given that word of prophecy and they bubbled it forth as God gave them the orders. Nextly we see in verse number 10, the discerning of spirits. There were false spirits in that first century era. We encountered them in 1 Timothy 4 and in other places. We notice, though, that there was, of course, those that were led by and guided by the true Spirit of God. Notice that there were some in that day and time who had the capability of discerning that Spirit, those that were false versus those that were true. We might appreciate the especial usefulness of a gift like that, given that that was before the days when the Word was completed. When a preacher showed up in ancient Colossae and stood before them and started preaching, how did they know that he was preaching the truth of God? They had no Bible to compare his message to. Could it be that there were those in the audience being especially gifted by the Holy Spirit with a spirit of divination and that of identifying tongues, they could know whether that man was true or not. We also see in this same verse 10, to another, divers kinds of tongues. The gift of tongues involved the speaking in languages that had never been learned. In Acts chapter 2, when that is discussed and listed, Notice that those present on Pentecost said, How hear we every man speak in our own tongues, in our language? They knew what was being said. Though there are some today who claim the ability to speak in tongues, and quite frankly, it's a bunch of ecstatic gibberish, and yet they claim it's a speaking in tongues. The tongues of the New Testament was not any such ecstatic gibberish. It was an actual language, a dialect, if you will, that various individuals could understand. Notice that there were some then on the first century who could speak in languages they had never learned. Today, you and I cannot do that. If we are to speak Russian, we must study Russian. If we're to speak Japanese or Polish or French 
or Spanish. We must study it and involve ourselves in experiencing it and thus speaking in that language. Finally, there is the interpretation of tongues. There were those who could interpret tongues. To look at all of these listings, we quickly learn these were miraculous in character. So in terms of identifying the nature of them, that is the nature. These were not things that were talents, as if a person could be born with them. It's not that they were gained by experience. It's not that they were gained by schooling or learning. They were apart from all of that. Thus, in answer to the first question, that was the nature of these. What was their purpose? Why was it so important for the first century church to involve and to experience these? Chapter 14 highlights that very clearly for us. Three different times in that chapter. May I invite you to look first at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 14. In these three chapters, as Paul, the inspired apostle, described these spiritual gifts... Verse 5 of this chapter says, I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh the tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Though an extensive discussion might well be involved and given with respect to that passage, notice that Paul closes the verse by saying that the church may receive edifying. The purpose of the spiritual gift as stated there was for the whole church that they might be strengthened, built up, edified. Holding that thought in mind, let's note verse 12 of the same chapter. Even so ye for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church we again see a reference to the edification of the church with respect to the usage of spiritual gifts. Later in verse 26 of the same chapter, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. It's difficult to miss the point, isn't it? The purpose of the spiritual gifts was not for the glorification of the person who possessed it. It was not for the exaltation among the church of the one who had it in possession. It was for the mutual benefit, the mutual encouragement of the church as a whole, of that congregation of the people of God. Thus, may we never lose sight that there are some today who then will say that this matter of gifts, well, they use it to, in fact, place a stamp of God's approval that they are saved. That wasn't the purpose of the first century gifts. It wasn't as an identification or confirmation that he or she was saved. It was for the mutual benefit and the encouragement of the church. May I submit then with the nature and purpose set before us, let's come to the last question. Are the spiritual gifts still in existence today? Are there those that can heal and prophesy and speak in tongues and work miracles and knowledge and wisdom and the things we've listed? May I submit that we should allow God to speak on that point. In the very heart of this text, let's notice chapter 13. Verse number 8 was read a moment ago as our reading for this morning. And let's look at verse number 8. And let's read that again and try to lay the emphasis where the apostle laid it. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. 
Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Pausing at that point to at least revisit the matter then, are the spiritual gifts resident in humanity today? After listing those gifts, in verse number 31 of chapter 12, Paul gave a hint of what was to come in this language. He said, Yet show I unto you a more excellent way. There was something that would rise in stature higher than the spiritual gifts. There was something, Paul said, that will be superior to them. It's not shocking that in chapter 13, Paul would reveal and in fact set before us what that more excellent way was. And then when he reached verses 8 through 10 that we just read, he now exactly lists three of the spiritual gifts that we had already listed. He listed prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. And especially said in every instance that it shall be done away, it shall cease, it shall be done away. Directly confirming then that these things, those spiritual gifts therein listed, the time would come they would cease to be. The thrust of the Greek verb is exactly that. Admittedly, the King James uses the word fail with regard to prophecy. In the Greek, it literally means will be abolished, will be done away with. The time would come that it would no longer be resident. Now, one can ask, when will that time be? Has it come yet? Verse 10 seems to answer it. But when that which is perfect is come, what is the thing that's described as perfect? For apparently when whatever that is would come, the days of the spiritual gifts would be no more. There are some who say that the word perfect identifies Jesus. That when He came, of course He had already been crucified and ascended back to the Father by this time. And so they are thus those who say, well, then the spiritual gifts are resident all throughout the character of the lifetime that we now see. There are others who say that it refers to the Lord's second coming, claiming again that these gifts then will be resident until the Lord comes the second time and ushers in whatever shall take place then. I might submit it does not seem to me the language will permit that interpretation. Let's notice, if the word perfect would refer to the Savior, you would expect it to be masculine in gender. For the Lord was a male. He was a man. The word perfect is neuter in the Greek. It is neither male nor female. It thus seems to refer to something that's not a person at all. It's not a man, it's not a woman, it's not a boy, it's not a girl. It's something that's neuter. When we ask what that something might be that is nonetheless perfect... Could it be the Word of God? We had noted earlier that at the time the Corinthian letter was written, the Scriptures had not been completed. Could it be that Paul was saying, when those Scriptures in their fullness are complete, that which is perfect will have come, and there will no longer be a need for these resident miraculous spiritual gifts? Not only would that be a strong possibility, it is what other texts confirm. Let's notice Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. In the inspired writer, as he set forth a text that relates to this same idea, notice the power and the clarity of the language that's used. 
Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And please note with me, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. We notice that there was a confirmation of that word spoken by the apostles. How was it confirmed? Verse number 4. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The Holy Spirit provided these gifts for the confirmation of the Word while as yet the Word was in the stages of its completion. But when that which is perfect is come, Paul said, those things would be no more. Today, we can confidently say that despite the claims of some, there is no man that can work these spiritual gifts revealed to us in 1 Corinthians 12. If so, why isn't the Cookville Hospital empty? If the supernatural gift of healing is resident, why are there hospitals? Should there not be a healing of everyone sick? Why is there any need to study languages and go to foreign countries and preach if there is the gift of tongues? If there is the other gifts that have been there enlisted, I would submit that the claims of these who claim to be able to operate with them are sorely deluded. The Bible has told us differently. These gifts of the Holy Spirit were for an era long since past now. Can we be thankful that they had them then? Absolutely. But are they resident now? No, they're not. To conclude that part of our lesson today does take us to the question of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As we come to that particular discussion as well, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is another question that is surrounded by great controversy, surrounded by great issues of discussion and wonderment. For after all, we can also again notice some good questions as we started. Does the Holy Spirit indwell Christians? If so, how? What is accomplished by the indwelling of that Spirit? Furthermore, as the Spirit indwells, what could be the benefits associated with it? All of those are very good questions and those that maybe we each have wondered and we've heard others speak about them. I would submit again, the Scriptures seem to answer all that we need to consider relative to this subject. As you notice some of the things I've written for your consideration, let's answer those questions in order. Does the Holy Spirit in some way indwell Christians? Acts 5 verse 32 perhaps is a good place to begin. When there the apostles testify to the fact that we are witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit which dwells in them that obey Him. Clearly it would seem that in some way the Holy Spirit does indwell in Galatians 4 verse 6, we read that God gives His Spirit into our hearts so that we may cry, Abba, Father. Another reference that seems to certainly affirm the same. Perhaps a third one we might also notice is that of Romans 8 verses 9 and 11, where there the inspired apostle said that if we are none of His, if the Spirit of Christ doesn't dwell in us. 
we certainly would expect to be children of the Father and those who are those who have obeyed the Lord in baptism. And so we would expect to be cataloged as those who are His, and yet Paul said we are not unless the Spirit dwells in us. It seems safe to say, doesn't it, that in some way the Spirit does indwell Christians. Of that, we really can't have much doubt. The question becomes, though, in regard to, to all of that, is to note this. Though the Spirit indwells us, those texts have not told us how He indwells us and the manner by which that's accomplished. We will need to study further to obtain that information. Perhaps one element that will answer that is to ask, what about God the Father and what about God the Son? Do the, does the Bible anywhere make reference to the fact that they also indwell those that obey the Lord, that they also indwell those that are Christians? I suspect that if we could answer that question and study it, it may shed great light on the question of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 4, verses 12 and 15, we read there that God, the Father, indwells Christians. Isn't it interesting? We rarely seem to hear much about the indwelling of God. It's always the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there we read that those who love one another are those that have God dwelling in them. In verse 15, those who confess Jesus as a Son of God, God dwells in Him, and He in God. There's a statement of the indwelling of the Father. What we notice about the indwelling of the Son in Colossians 1.27, there Christ in you the hope of glory. As Paul wrote to the Colossian brethren, he directly affirmed Christ in you the hope of glory. How is it Christ was in them? By some means there was an indwelling of the Son. We have thus seen in these two passages that there is not only an indwelling of the Spirit, but an indwelling of both the Father and the Son. If we could learn by way of association and by revelation how both the Father and the Son indwell, we may then know how the Spirit indwells too. The answer to that latter one is given. Let's see how the Son and the Father both indwell the Christian. Could I invite you to read with me 2 John verse number 9. We have the direct statement given, not only there but in a few other passages as well. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. The opening sentence of 2 John 9. Notice the association. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine, teaching, presentation of Christ does not have God. Notice the indwelling is occurring through the doctrine taught, through the teaching revealed, through that which has been presented. But that isn't all. In Ephesians 3.17 we find again the inspired apostle say that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Isn't that beautiful? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. There's another reference to the indwelling, if you will, of the Savior, of the Son, but it occurs by faith. But doesn't it also say that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? We should thus appreciate that you and I are not deity. To say that God or that Christ dwells in me does not mean I'm worthy of worship, nor does it mean that for you. We are mortals, but when the actuality of the Word of God is alive in us, 
It is put into practice by us. And by that we love one another. And we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And we undergo the activities and performances revealed in the sacred text. It is stated then that these parts of the Trinity dwell in us in a measure and in a way. So far it has certainly been that way with both the Father and the Son. In Colossians 3.16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Notice there that as that Word of Christ dwells, we have another speaking of an indwelling. And thus Christ dwells through the Word that He's revealed. It's no wonder that the life then that you and I lead is a life overcome by and representative of the glorious goodness of the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15 says, For the Word of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. We thus live the words that the Savior revealed, living a life that's pleasing in His sight. Thus, could we submit that both Christ and the Father indwell through the nature of the doctrine of the Word, and that same conclusion obtains relative to the Spirit? It is not the case, then, that the Spirit indwells you or me and acts in some way separate and apart from this Word. After all, He wrote this, and if that's what He did, He'd be contradictory. He cannot say or tell something in a religious character to one person that's contradictory to this. He wrote this, and he himself would cast himself as a liar if that's what he did. It is the case, then, as the Spirit indwells through the nature of the Word. Might we look at just one final set of thoughts, and then the lesson will be yours this morning. Isn't it interesting that various places in the New Testament that something that is said to be accomplished by the Spirit in one text, in a different text, is said to be accomplished by the Word? That's powerful evidence, isn't it? For instance, consider with me briefly the matter of giving life. We read in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 that the Spirit does that. Later in James 1.18, the Word of God does it. Could that be a text affirming for us that as the Spirit indwells, it does so by the Word, and that when thus one lives by that Word, he has become spiritually alive, associated with God, no longer burdened with sin. Notice also the matter of salvation. Titus 3 verse 5 tells us that the Spirit makes that available. We read later though in James 1.21 that it's the Word is such that it's through which salvation comes. Could that be another set of passages helping us see that as the Spirit indwells a person through the reality of the Word, that when that person obeys it, Acts 5.32, salvation is the promised gift and blessing of God. What about sanctification? We read in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that that comes through the Spirit. We read in James 17, John 17.17 17, it comes through the Word. Well, notice it's not an either-or. That's the agency through which the Spirit gives those things. To those thus who believe that the Spirit actually, personally, and directly indwells them as the third member of the Godhead, separate and apart from this Word, they are mistaken. The Spirit doesn't indwell in that fashion. For if He did, might we ask how that could possibly harmonize 
with Acts 10 and 34. God is no respecter of person. Those kinds of thoughts lead us to conclude our lesson this morning, perhaps by noting a set of passages I place at the bottom of that screen. The Holy Spirit does not operate directly on the heart, separate and apart from the Word. If you'd like to pencil those verses down and read the rest of them, might I submit to you that they paint a graphic picture and an almost inescapable conclusion relative to the truth of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Today, may we ever appreciate the glory of this book. It contains all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. We do not need a separate, direct, operational measure of the Holy Spirit. Everything for life and godliness is here. And the Spirit is who has made this available. How thankful we should be for the Word of God the power that's contained within it, the blessings that it offers, and the eternal salvation which it describes. In concluding to the lesson today, we have revisited those miraculous gifts, learned that they were for a long distant time in the past. Though they were powerful and needed then, they have been removed as that which is no longer occurring today. As far as the indwelling, it occurs by virtue of the implications and the application of this word. Today, is the Spirit of God thus dwelling in you? Romans 8 verse 9 says, If it's not, you are not God's. The direct conclusion, you then must be the devil's. There's only two masters, Matthew 6 24. Which are you serving today? If you've never obeyed the precious gospel in an initial way, realize you're still in your sins if you've reached the age of knowing what sin is and that Christ died for you. If we could be of assistance in affirming your belief, aiding you by appreciating the confession of that same fact, of course, preceded by your repentance, we'd be honored to help you with baptism, in which your sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. If you have done that but have not been true and faithful, come back to your first love. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you, just as was the case of Simon in Acts 8, beginning in verse number 15. If we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways today, wouldn't you let it be known with haste, even while together we stand and while we sing?